Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. How to get 30, 30, to get 30, how to get 20, 20, 20, how to get 20, 20, to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month? So, Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn Jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom. Like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical Noom user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. Hey, listeners. I want to thank our good friends at Slipped Disc for their enthusiastic support of Speaking Soundly. Be sure to check out slipdisc.com for the latest inside information on classical music now. Oh, and while you're here, could you do me a favor? If you like this show... Follow it. It's pretty simple, really, and it's free. Just click the follow button on whatever podcast app you're listening to right now. And if you already follow the show, click the share podcast button and send Speaking Soundly to your friends and relatives that also like listening to candid and inspiring conversations with some of the best musicians on the planet. All right. So thanks again for the continued support. We really appreciate it. Emmanuel Axe is one of the most celebrated pianists of his generation. His solo and chamber music recordings have earned him seven Grammys, and throughout his nearly 50-year career, he's never stopped looking for new ways to make the piano sing. The thing I love about the piano is that there's no one sound. We try to make it sound sometimes like a singer, sometimes like a glockenspiel, sometimes like a percussion section, and sometimes like a grand string ensemble. You're listening to Speaking Soundly, a backstage pass to today's biggest stars of the music world. I'm your host, David Krauss, principal trumpet of the Metropolitan Opera. During each episode, you'll hear me speak with inspiring performers about their creative process and the personal journey that led them to the stage. Hi. Manny, how are you? I'm all right, thanks. It's good to see you. Actually, I just ran by your house this morning. Oh, that's funny. I, I did everything today. I've practiced for three hours. I took a, a three and a half mile walk. I had salad for lunch with no bread. I've done <laughs> everything right today. It sounds like you've had an incredibly productive day and I don't want to derail it. So I'll get right down to it. What is your earliest memory of the piano? Uh, my earliest memory was that I was born in the Soviet Union and we had Somehow in the apartment that we took over, you know, it was a crazy, it was a crazy way to live. There were two families in one small apartment and, and that was 
par for the course over there with, with virtually no housing to be had. Uh, and for some reason, there was a little upright piano in the living room of that apartment. Uh, and nobody, nobody played really, but I kind of got intrigued by it. And my dad was an amateur musician. And so he saw, you know, maybe I was interested and that was it. That's my earliest memory. So essentially, was it your father who started you off? He was a musical guy, so he could he could point things out. But I had a teacher when I was six. You know, they got they got me a teacher from the neighborhood. Very, very yeah. nice man uh, whom I studied with for, for a few months. And then when uh, my dad saw that I really was interested, he took me to a central music school, you know, because that's another they have a, they had a system. They probably still do. Uh, of of various elementary schools that were connected to a discipline. So the elementary school that, that I went to had music as a discipline. That was when I was about six. And then when I was seven, my family moved to Warsaw, to Poland. And again, there was the same kind of situation. There was a music school, which still exists, on a street called Miodowa Ulica, which is Honey Street. Uh, and I've been there. Uh, a few times to to see the kids and so forth. Uh, I guess you could call it a charter school, but their their system was to have various various emphases. You know, some were sports, some were music, some were science. You know, depending. And how did you stay dedicated at such an early age? I mean, practicing for anyone that young can really be a chore. I think there was an emphasis from my teachers who were very kind. I, a lady. In, in the Soviet Union and a lady in Poland until I was about 10 and we moved to the West. They were very kind people, but also managed to somehow make it very serious. Wonderful teachers. They got that combination, I think, kind of just right. Uh, so there were times when I'm sure there were times when I didn't feel like like doing it. But they were they were fairly insistent and my father was fairly insistent, you know, on, on doing it every day. But not a lot. I didn't practice a lot when I was a kid. And eventually, was there a transition to where you became more self-motivated? Sure. I think around the time I was 13, 14, maybe, I started thinking about making this my life. I started having fantasies about playing on the stage of a big hall or with a big orchestra. And I had, I had gone already many, many times to Carnegie Hall and I liked that, you know, I liked the look of it from, from the balcony. And I thought it must be wonderful to be down there. And I, when I was 12 years old, I still remember, I, I, was, I was very lucky. There was a, a wonderful man named Stuart Warco. You, I'm sure you didn't know him, but he was the, the Carnegie Hall manager. And he saw me hanging around uh, backstage, maybe, or at rehearsals, and he he asked me, you know, what do you play? I said, I play the piano. And he said, well, you want to try the piano on the stage? There was a piano on the stage. They kept one in the corner of the hall when it wasn't being used. So I actually, I got to play a, a little bit on that stage when I was 12 or so on the stage of Carnegie with nobody in, in it, of course. I mean, which actually is when it sounds the best, I think, when it's empty with no audience. Um, were you struck by the way this enormous piano sounded? In the hall, just look, I was struck by the look much more than the sound. I wasn't so aware of the sound. I don't think when you looked up from that stage, 
saw the place, uh, you know, it's, well, you, you've, you've done it. You know, sure. who were the pianists you remember hearing perform there? The first pianist I ever heard there, and that was purely by accident because we had just arrived in New York and there was a piano recital by a, a fabulous French pianist who's long gone, Samson Francois, is his name. I mean, quite, quite famous to pianophiles. Uh, he had a Carnegie Hall recital and, and we, I, of course, I didn't know who he was, but I went and, and uh, heard him. That was the first one, I think. And then the next, I, I, Rubinstein played there also just a few months after we got to New York. Uh, Rubinstein played many times every year. Him I heard endlessly uh, over and over and over, all the way through until I was maybe 26. I think that was the last year that Rubinstein played a recital in New York. And you saw him and you said, that's it. That's what I want to do. That was the fantasy to see these people in, uh, in, in tailcoats. I didn't know it was a tailcoat, but a uniform and appearing there and people uh, listening to this and hearing beautiful music. So it was the whole, the combination of the music really affecting me, the whole atmosphere of the place and of the attention that was being paid and to the musician and all of that. You know, for somebody in a different profession would be like going to Yankee Stadium. Look down there and you say, I would love to, I would love to be on the field. So at this point, you are dedicated to piano. Did you ever feel like the work that you had to put in every day impeded on your social life as a teenager? No, most of the, the thing is by then, most of my friends really were in music. Uh, I was, I was going to Saturday Juilliard prep and, uh, those were the people I met, uh, so when I was 15, uh, I met my friend who's my friend now, Garrett Olson. And we did a lot together, spent a lot of time together. Uh, we went to a lot of concerts together. He was one. Uh, there were a lot of other kids, kids at the school, violinists, cellists. Uh, so, so that was really my life. And did you play sports or was the fear of breaking a finger just too much for a pianist? Yeah, at school, you know, I used to try and play basketball. And so I jammed my fingers a few times. You know, I'd sprain one finger, sprain another. Uh, I once fell off a bike and, and hurt my elbow. Uh, I think just a chip. I didn't have to, you know, get anything. It wasn't broken. Uh, but yeah, a few things. I'm generally careful, uh, but not specifically of my hands. Yeah. Uh, I, I, I think I'm, I'm much more careful now because of my age. You know, when I, I used to, when I would be on stage, for example, and, and you'd want to, during rehearsal, you know, jump down and, and listen to the orchestra. I would jump from the stage down, you know, I don't do that anymore. I, I'm, you know, this past year I've been watching Jacques Pepin videos, you know, for cooking. So he's the one that he's Mr. Careful. Tells you about the grip that I practice, right. you know, with the cutting of the knife and so forth. But but I, I don't really worry so much about the, the I've never worried about my hands particularly. Right. Well, I, I think it falls in line with your general demeanor. I mean, you're known as being humble, quiet and laid back, yet you're capable of incredible musical intensity and precision when you play. It's a great mix to have. I have obsessive compulsive syndrome to a very small degree.
So for example, I know the number of steps in every subway station that I use in New York because I always have to step off with my left foot. Okay, so if you're getting off the subway at 66th Street, Lincoln Center. That has 16 steps. I'm going to write this down. But they may have, you know, you, you have to remember, they may have repaired it. Did that on 86th Street and they went from 17 to 18. Wow. So the change starting out with a different different foot. So it's a couple of things, but it's it's very small. I don't I don't have a, a a huge amount of it, but you know I understand a little of it. But that's my only, that's really my only foible. Well, it seems to be working for you just fine. Let me ask you now about the sound and feel of the pianos that you play as you tour the world. What makes them sound different? What makes them feel different? When you play, I'm sure you have exactly the same thing as I do. When you play an instrument, whatever you do physically is also reflected immediately by the sound you're getting in your ear from what you're playing. If I play a chord on the piano, I immediately adjust my hands right? Like what I just heard. So... I can't, it would be impossible for me, for example, to play physically the same on two pianos that where one is a light touch, one is a hard touch, or one where the hammers are softer and the hammers are harder. I, I couldn't do it, you know, it, I, I couldn't, I don't think it's possible, you know, to that degree to be, to be mechanically that correct, to say I'm using the exact same weight on this and on this. So it's you reacting to the mechanical nature of the instrument that is changing the sound. Exactly. So if you're in this, if you're in a hall, the easiest way to, to describe this, the way you're at Steinway's and you have seven different pianos, there are, there's probably a piano where for the particular person who's playing is the most comfortable in terms or, or the most pleasing in terms of the connection between the sound you're getting and the feeling of your hands. And that's the connection you're looking for. This is a beautiful piano, means the connection between what you're doing and what comes back at you is a very pleasing one. So there's no magic in the wood. The, the magic is in how you hear and react to the movement of the piano as the hammer hits the string. Yes, I mean, to, to, to many different aspects of the mechanics of the piano. It's the keyboard, the, the hammer, the speed of the action, you know, all those things play into it. There, there are many separate steps to the mechanical part of it. But I'll give you an, I'll give you an example of what happens all the time. You go to the Steinway basement, you pick a piano, you say, ah, this, I love this piano. You get to the hall where you're playing and you say, they sent the wrong piano. This is not the piano I picked. And they show you, well, here's the number. You know, it's number 125. Right. 125. And you say, okay, but this doesn't sound like that. So whatever has happened in the combination of the hall feedback to your ear, the whole feedback to, to all of that is another 
thing, which is which is why, for example, I've stopped picking pianos to take to Carnegie Hall. I just play what's in Carnegie Hall. Because I've had too many experiences of where I've gone to pick the piano and it arrives and I said, this is this is not what I picked. I don't like it. Do you ever get piano anxiety over not knowing what the piano is going to be like when you show up to play it? You know, I think I actually worry about it a lot less than my colleagues, uh, some colleagues. Garrick and I are very much the same in that respect. We, we don't really worry about it. Our, our feeling is we will come there. If there's a choice of pianos, we'll pick the one we like better. If there's no choice, we'll play what there is. Uh, so we don't worry about it. And other people, I, I have friends who write to me, you know, and they'll say, uh, yeah, uh, Radu Lupu is an example where I get, I get messages. You know, says, I know you played this year in Schenectady. I have a recital there next season, 12 months from now. How's the piano? You know, and I, uh, so I write back. I say, oh, the piano seemed good to me. You know, I like the piano. Of course, in 12 months, I don't know what it's going to sound like, first of all. Of all, I don't really know how he is going to feel that day. You know, these are all, so all of these, all of these issues are very difficult for certain people and, and very, and, and it's easy in the sense of, of being, uh, of, of trusting to fate for other people, which I do. I, when I go to Cleveland, I don't worry. First of all, because I know the piano. Second of all, I know because they have good pianos. And that's the other thing that, that when you have, uh, a situation where there, you know it's a good piano or it's going to be a good piano, you can adjust. And how exactly do you adjust? Instinct. Just It just, it kind of happens. You know, you say, oh, this is a wonderful piano. It's quite bright. I so I don't have to do this or I don't have to do that. You know, it's, See, or right. it's an excellent piano. The bass is very big. So I should be careful not to drown out my fifth finger of the right hand. You know, it sounds like an overwhelming challenge, but the way you're describing it, it sounds like a fun puzzle that you're trying to solve. That's absolutely how I feel. It's a creative process. It, it, it helps you hear things that you wouldn't hear otherwise. That's also important, you know, where you suddenly realize that the tune comes out differently here. Maybe that's good. Or maybe it's not good and I have to do something about it. So you make friends with the instrument. The instrument becomes, for a pianist, I think the instrument becomes part of the practicing process. Which is why you need, I, I arriving 30 minutes before a concert and warming up only on the backstilled piano... That I wouldn't like so much. I'd like to get to know the instrument that I'm playing on and know what's coming up. I have, I have a couple of pianos that, that I really, really like in, in New York that I try to use for when we, when, when Yo-Yo and I uh, make a recording, I try to get that piano. Okay. Well, I'll reserve that number ahead of time. And so right. we have that one. And that's, and that usually works out well. Do you have a favorite place to play? 
I wouldn't say a favorite place. I, you know, I, it's the usual suspects. You, you probably know the same halls I do, and you like the same halls. Right. Carnegie Hall's a great place to play. Right. Vienna halls are both wonderful. Uh, the the Concertgebouw in Amsterdam is a wonderful hall. The Berlin Hall is wonderful. You know, th there are a number. Disney Hall in in L.A. is wonderful. You know, sometimes people will say, "This is such a wonderful hall. You can just play." I don't believe there's any place like that. I think wherever you are, you have to make some adjustment to where you are. Now, there's no ideal. There are there are wonderful places where you make certain small adjustments, and there are other places which are you have to make more adjustments. Some where the adjustments won't even help you that much. But I think a, a symphony hall in Boston is a wonderful hall. It's terrific, but. I hear from people that to play short notes there is not so easy, you know. So, so if you have a piece that that you need this, you got to you got to play very short. It's really inspiring to talk with someone who revels in the solutions rather than being mired down by the problems. No, I I don't know. I, I mean, I think we, in a way, pianists grow up with it because we never carry our instrument. Which, which of course is a huge difference. So it's a different thing. You have different ways of, of dealing with it. At least you know you'll never leave a piano in a cab. I don't, I never have to pay overweight baggage. I don't, <laughs> I don't have about where it, where it goes on the, you know, in the rack above me. It's, so, it's stressful, trust me. All of those things, I know, I know I've seen it because I traveled a lot of my life with yo-yo. With when we go, the amount of grief you go through with the cello, it's unbelievable. Even for him, who he's a very famous guy, it's not easy, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah. Can you describe the sound of the piano? Multi-voiced, many voices. That's the big difference for us between the piano and virtually everybody else. We are the closest thing to what an orchestra sounds like. We can also play alone, as, as an orchestra can. You know, you can have individual players. But we are the closest thing to what a group can sound like. And in terms of the tone? Oh, gosh. I, I think, well, the thing I love about the piano is that there's no one sound. It's, it's the most, most chameleon-like instrument for music. Uh, we try to make it sound sometimes like a singer, sometimes like a tambourine, sometimes like a glockenspiel, sometimes like a percussion section, and sometimes like a grand string ensemble. All of those things. There's a recording of, of Horowitz playing the F-sharp minor polonaise of Chopin that you should hear sometime. I think he actually gets the piano to literally sound like a trumpet. The place that goes... There's that one note, that A, you know. Don't ask me how he does it, but it sounds... You know, listen to that performance. One of the greatest performances on the piano of anything ever. I'll absolutely listen to that this afternoon. We spoke once at the Opera House after a performance, and you were remarking how much you love the lyrical quality of the singing. 
How do you do that on a piano if the second you hit a note, the note disappears? How do you make that singing line like a singer would? I don't know what the I don't know what the physical side of it is. And in, in fact, when I talk to I, I'm I'm one of these weird people that most pianists think I'm I'm an idiot because I I don't believe that there is anything you can do to change the sound of the instrument. In other words, you hit the note and that's it. <laughs> You're done. Uh, you can't, and the only thing you can control is how hard and how fast. Right. So basically what you're listening for, what I'm listening for is what happens to the next note. Uh, and I think I, I re I remember Horowitz saying, saying once, I think he wrote it somewhere, said it somewhere. He said, the art of piano playing is the art of the second note. And I always thought that was unbelievably perceptive because, you know, there are people that talk about, well, if you do this with the hand, I always think it makes no difference. Take a, a, a pencil and use the eraser end and do the exact same thing and you'll get the sound of the piano. It's just getting from there to the next one. <laughs> and that's a matter really of, of getting your ear to tell you what sounds right. You suit your physical motion or your physical attack or whatever to what you're hearing come out. And you can think, well, maybe this will work better if I have my hand like this, or maybe it'll work better if I have my hand like this, but it's, it's a very unspoken and instinctive thing. I, and, and there are people who do it's, it's what they want to hear, you know? So for example, I've almost never played any music of Prokofiev. I'm really bad at it because I, I love the music, you know, it's fantastic stuff. But I don't have a feel. Somehow it doesn't connect for me to make that sound, which, which is a kind of attack, which I think you need. So I don't try to do it. I, I, maybe I could have, you know, 35 years ago, schooled myself to do it. I didn't. But I think that's, a, that's almost a, a kind of part of your being. And that's, so that's where, that's where piano sound comes from. It comes from listening to what you'd like to hear. I hope you enjoyed this episode of Speaking Soundly. If you like what you heard, please tell your friends about it. Spread the word. Be sure to follow, rate us, and leave a review wherever you get your podcasts. To keep up on future episodes, follow us on Instagram at speakingsndly and visit our website, artfulnarrativesmedia.com. Tune in next week as we hear another inspiring artist speaking soundly. Hey, it's Danny Pellegrino from Everything Iconic. Ready to upgrade your style game without blowing your budget? Check out Quince. They've got all the good stuff, shirts and polos, activewear and fine leather goods, all at 50 to 80% less than other high-end brands. And the best part? They're all about safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get that luxury vibe without the luxury price tag. Hit up quince.com slash upgrade for free shipping and 365-day returns on your next order. That's quince.com slash upgrade. Planning for your next trip? 
Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash pack for free shipping and 365-day returns. When you make decisions for your company, you look for the no-brainers. If you have a lot of mailing to do, Stamps.com is the ultimate no-brainer. Use the Stamps.com mobile app to mail everything you need to keep your business running with up to 89% off USPS and UPS. Make the same no-brainer decision as over 1 million other businesses with Stamps.com. Use code PROGRAM for a special offer. That's Stamps.com, code PROGRAM.